The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to yet another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, and this is episode 64, and we are back to our sex comedy series. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and I think it's appropriate that we're coming back to the sex comedies on a perfect square, because I'm kind of a square myself. (laughs) You're L7, yes. (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah so uh we're back to our sex comedy series uh we're going to be doing a a more serious and actual mature kind of sex comedy this time out and then after that we're just going to get right into the fucking sleaze we're just gonna it's just gonna be titties and dicks and vaginas and bad words and rape and everything everywhere it's gonna be fun yeah and we will we will, it will be fun and we will talk about all of those things but i insisted we do a a, a bit of a, a one highbrow you know, and then we'll go back into the gutter. And I am perfectly fine with both of those things. But I did. Um, I saw this film a few months ago, and I thought we have to cover this on this podcast. So um, I, I, this was one I definitely said we are covering this during the next X Company series. And, and we acquiesced. Um, yeah. Well, and I'm actually glad you did because I quite enjoyed this film. So we'll, we will get into that. But uh, spoilers, spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, first off, we got a little bit of housekeeping to do. Uh, First thing I want to mention is uh, Owen, uh, God damn it, and I practice his goddamn name. I, I went to pronunciation and everything. Gihugen, I think, is is the, is the correct pronunciation. Owen Gihugen, who is uh, one of our uh, listeners on the Facebook page, requested last week that we talk about Danny Glover's wardrobe, and we did, but we were so drunk that I forgot to fucking record the goddamn hangout when we were talking about that part, so... We fucked up. Yes. So can we just briefly talk about Danny Glover's wardrobe in Predator 2 and get it out of the way? I just think there's nothing more badass and masculine than a mustard-colored long-sleeve shirt with a gun vest uh, and uh, baggy pants. I think that's that's basically what Hero Cops in 1997 should look like. Is this the future wardrobe? Like, Did they like anticipate 1997? Every cop is going to wear wool pants and a mustard-colored shirt in L.A. in a heat wave. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, I guess it feels like it doesn't feel very 1997, but it feels very much what 1990 thought 1997 was going to look yes. like. Right? You know, like you look, you look at fashion in 1990, and you think like, oh yes, I can sort of see how they're kind of looking forward. And, and kind of had this had this imagining of this kind of uh, future in which this was sort of just what cops wore. Um, honestly, I don't even process it as that weird. I just kind of process it as, oh yeah, that's what Danny Glover wears in Predator Two. You know, it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, Bill Paxton is more distracting to me than uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you accept that there's a certain amount of the people who live in LA accept the climate, so they can wear jackets and not be too hot, you know, to a right. certain extent. 
But I'm looking at Danny Glover, and I'm like, no wonder this guy's an angry black man because he's he's wearing like wool pants and a fucking heavy dress shirt, and he's sweating all the time, and he's got white people telling him what to do, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, no wonder, no wonder, including including Robert Davi, you know, like, yeah, Robert Davi, Robert Davi is in this film, but uh, yeah. Who is one of the quintessential character acting assholes in movies. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, uh, I I hope you enjoyed that, uh, Owen. Uh, We did not forget you. We we try to please our listeners, so uh, there you go. Because when I was editing the last podcast, I realized, oh, fuck, I did not actually press record when we recorded the, did the second hangout for just that bit on Danny Glover. And so there you go. There you go. Yay. We talked about Danny Glover's wardrobe in this episode. Yeah, he he looked he looked very hot and sweaty. He did. Uh, yeah, uh, we have one comment from Mike Murphy from the Badass Boobs and Body Counts podcast. He said, "Good episode, guys. I recently picked up the RoboCop trilogy on Blu-ray and watched part two. It's not altogether bad, and it is amazing if you watch RoboCop three afterwards." When <laughs> uh, he says that is one fucking train wreck. He recalls seeing Predator 2 in the theaters, but ha- I haven't seen it uh, since. I always thought Danny Glover was an odd choice as the lead. I have to revisit this one now that I've heard this episode. Lastly, I'd li- I have to agree with Lee on Predators. It's way better than it had the right to be. Cheers. And yeah, uh, Predators is actually worth your while. And be interested in seeing what your thoughts are on uh, Predator 2 uh, there, Mike. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested. I think I think they should cover this on Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts. Boobs, too. Yeah, there's boobs in Badasses, yeah. Danny Glover, and yeah. the Predator, you know? And body <laughs> count, I'm sure I'm sure that's a big number. Yeah. Although, uh, given, given most of the stuff they cover, that might be a little too highbrow for, for the sort yeah, of no, stuff. But, I get that, I get that. But, you know, come on, do it, Mike. <laughs> I kind of want to just see them one day just do something that's, like, completely uh, not in their wheelhouse. Like, like, I want to see them do, like, a Tartofsky film and just not have any reference at all to the fact that they're doing, like, art house cinema all of a sudden. And then, you know, just move on and then do, you know, just not even reference it. It would be funny. <laughs> it would be pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> that that should be, like, a, that should be a bonus episode they consider, like, some sort of special bonus episode. Yeah. yeah. Badass is the sense of ennui. <laughs> <laughs> The, the general malaise and, uh, yeah. In, in 1970s Paris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, yes. Uh, we're, we're starting to devise some fan fiction for yeah, podcasts. Yeah. Like, that's great. We need a gimmick like that, man. You know, come on. You know, who did get destroyed on site in this episode? You know? Yeah, no. I mean, even the badass moves and body counts don't really rely on a gimmick. And, uh... The, the idea of us relying on a gimmick kind of <laughs> sours everything for me. It's like, oh, God. I, I, can't, I can't imagine us ever having that much structure. Well, that's the thing. We just, cre- we just fucking covered Robocop 2 and Predator 2, and now we're covering Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Polar opposites, if there ever were any, <laughs> as far as films go. In a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, you know, kind of schlocky 90s action, you know, films, and then uh, late 60s uh Ode to free love, so you know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's how we roll around here. We we don't really have any sort of boundaries, so that's kind of where we're sticking with. But uh, and people seem to appreciate it, so it's good, and we like that people do appreciate it. So all, all four of you, we we appreciate. Yes. They must be the strong on site army. We appreciate you. 
<laughs> the TMD DOSers or whatever. Yeah, that I said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 join up for the paywall, everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we can go on to now to uh, what we've watched in the last little while. And you just wrote an article for uh, was it Editorium Press? Is that Editorium Press? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I know this is the one you want to talk about, so I'll just let you uh, start off there, Daniel. Sure. I really just wanted to uh, hype my uh, work on the uh, website. I'm, I'm now writing uh, kind of semi-weekly uh, for. I write a sex and gender column about sex and gender issues over to rudatormpress.com. Normally about kind of science fiction, but uh, this week I did a, a piece about Death Proof and about the way that uh, that's Quentin Tarantino's 2007 film. It's the second and a better half of the Grindhouse double feature. And uh, I wrote about that in context with uh, kind of sexualized violence and um, piss play, believe it or not. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I don't really have, I mean, I, I actually do have a lot to say about that film. What I realized when I was writing it is like, I have so much I could talk about with this film, but um, really just kind of talked about the, the way that violence is used and uh, the way that the audience responds to that works. And so I just wanted to, Tell people to go check that out. I do enjoy Death Proof. I, I like it a lot better than a lot of people do. Um, I'm a big Tarantino fan, as, as I think regular listeners will know, and uh, I don't apologize for that. <laughs> you were talking about in your article how uh, a lot of people sort of consider this his lesser film, like this is like kind of the bottom of the totem pole for I don't really agree with that. I actually do like Death Proof quite a bit. And right. Well, I, I mean... mean I think I think even Tarant- even Tarantino himself, like he was interviewed for a piece that was like kind of about his like how he saw his film filmography, mm-hmm. and and basically Tarantino says, you know, my goal is to leave a filmography like he's thinking about his filmography as a whole, yeah, like, you know, and he says I don't want to leave, I don't want there to be like bad films basically, I don't want there to be like this bad period where I was making films and they were just shit, yeah. and he's like I want Death Proof to be my worst film basically. And Death Proof is still a pretty good film. Like, he's not shitting on Death Proof. He's just saying, like, I kind of want this to be the film that people say, oh, well, that's clearly his worst. And then still be like, well, that's still pretty fucking good, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's, sort of, that's, sort of the, uh, that's sort of the way I think of it is I actually don't think it's his worst film. It's certainly not the one I would rewatch the last, you know? I, I, would, I would rate it over uh, Reservoir Dogs. I think it's a better made film. I, th- I mean, Reservoir Dogs has the undeniable historical importance, but once you mm-hmm. take that away from Reservoir Dogs, I do think Death Proof is... I mean, Death Proof would be right... I mean, basically, Reservoir Dogs would be the least, and then Death Proof would be right above that. Uh, that's, that's where I'd kind of think of it, yeah. Um, and I, I, liked your, I liked your talk about how um, there's that moment with uh, Kurt Russell's uh, stuntman Mike character where, you know, he's standing by his car, and he, he looks over at the camera and smiles, and it's like... Kind of, kind of sucks the viewer into like it's all right now. You, you guys, can, it's Kurt Russell here, guys. You can, you can watch me do these horrible things to these women, right. and, and and not feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's inviting the audience in, and I think that was that was something that was really. I spent a lot of time thinking about Death Proof over the over the week, and I'm still not sure I quite cracked it in terms of exactly what's going on in terms of kind of audience expectations. But um, I wrote a piece. I'd encourage people listening to this to go read it and um, leave some feedback, and uh, maybe we'll respond to it next week on the show. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. We'll link to it and uh, get it out there. But, uh, yeah. And I, I thought it was a pretty good article, by the way, so uh, people should check it out. The only thing I watched was a documentary that is now on Netflix from 2015. It's called I Am Thor. 
it it is it is based on the uh, career of John Michael Thor, who is a Canadian rock musician. Uh, he started as a bodybuilder and sort of curtailed that career into uh, heavy metal rock. In my opinion, he's one of the great underrated heavy metal musicians of his era. It basically covers his career, covers the sort of uh, mishaps that kind of sunk his career, sort of the the band that should have been but never was in in that sort of uh, genre of rock music. And it also covers his ongoing comeback tour, which has lasted now almost 20 years. Uh, he's not deluded he's a self-aware kind of guy who knows as like you know i have nothing but this and i'm coming back and i'm going to try my best because this is all i know and uh i really really enjoyed it it's it's a very well-balanced documentary it's not a uh fan blow job to to thor which it very much could have been and it's very well balanced and it just it, it just covers him as a as a as a man it covers him as a sort of obsessed kind of guy. Like he's this kind of guy, this kind of personality who is in it a hundred percent. Like he just keeps going and going and going. And I have a lot of respect for him. Actually. Uh, he's, he's a guy in his sixties now who does not look at all. Like he used to look in the 1970s when he was a bodybuilder and this, this fucking uh, Aryan God kind of character, you know, Right. Who at at times Stan Lee uh, uh, actually flirted with. Uh, we need to cast you as Thor in something that we do, although it never really happened. But um, right. but yeah, it, it's it's really really interesting. I, I enjoy these kind of rock documentaries where you get really into the personality of the people involved, and uh, this this guy just keeps plugging away. Like he he does not fucking give up, which I have a lot of respect for. Even though his sort of second half is, of his career is kind of a lot of people kind of consider it as a joke in a certain way, I have a lot of respect for it. I because he's he's seriously like trying to do everything he can to keep afloat and maybe hit the big time again. And uh, he may never do it. Probably will never do it, but it's a great documentary, and it's well worth seeing if you're a heavy metal fan. Actually, even if you're just kind of a documentary fan, because it's a really well-balanced one. It's really interesting, and I really enjoyed it. And I love Thor, by the way. I, I first few albums are favorites of mine, and uh, they're kind of cheesy. Like, uh, if you look on YouTube, if you look for worst music video ever, Thor's video for uh, Anger comes up, <laughs> and it's just kind of... Uh, Heavy metal, like in that period, they were kind of doing like the Dungeons and Dragons heavy metal kind of <laughs> kind of uh, tie era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it is pretty bad, but it's kind of really endearing. And it, at the bottom, at, at the end of the day, the music is actually really good. So uh, I, I really do love Thor, and uh, I really do like this documentary. So it's well worth worth watching now, and it's it's on Netflix. So there you go. Yeah, I think I saw that. I haven't, I haven't watched it, but I, I kinda, I've seen it referenced, so it was definitely like on my radar. Yeah, the rock documentaries are always are kind of music documentaries. You know, the, the, it's very easy to make a bad one. You know, the, mm-hmm. the behind the music formula can get really uh, tiresome after a while. But uh, when they work, they can really work, especially if it's an artist you you have some connection to. So. Uh, um, I don't know his music at all, but I'll uh, maybe check that out sometime soon. Yeah, and it's, it's cool too because it it also covers like his sort of longtime bandmates who, mm-hmm. you know, every, every once in a while Thor will connect with them again and and start up the band with them again. 
Although he's the kind of guy who goes from town to town and every once in a while, like new bands will connect with him and do the sets with him for that show. He's, he's kind of like Chuck Berry in a way. Like he's kind of like a heavy, heavy metal Chuck Berry. It's like he comes to town, here's his set list, this local band, learn his fucking songs and play with him on this show kind of thing. You know, like what Chuck That's Berry would do. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. And it's interesting to see like the desires and the, uh, expectations of his longtime band members who are like, we love this guy because he's just a really great guy. He's not an egomaniac or a nutcase or anything like that. But at the same time, we realize that he's he's his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. <laughs> he's his own manager. He, he's never like really had a manager in his career. Right. He made up this fictional manager that everyone should call, and it's him. He pretends to be that guy. <laughs> it's, it's, uh. it's, yeah, you know, I have I have a lot of respect. I was reading this thing on um, a blog I read called Gin and Tacos, which is kind of a, a mm-hmm. political blog. Um, I was reading this piece that was about um, you know the the writer, the, the guy Ed who writes the blog. It was uh, going to I forget which band it was. It was like Toad the Wet Sprocket or somebody is yeah. like playing near there. Um, actually, the Gin Blossoms are playing oh, really? Kalamazoo here next week, and I'm like, I could spend twenty bucks and go see the Gin Blossoms. That would be you know like. I could see that being kind of an amusing thing and, and kind of talking about like, you know, if you're, you know, if you're past your prime in the music business and you're like, you kind of had some hits and then you're, you can go and you can work at, you know, the car wash, you can go be an insurance adjuster or, you know, Hey, get up on stage, make a few money and you can, you know, you can make a living. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you kind of leave the idea of stardom behind and like, okay, I'm not actually going to be selling out, you know, selling millions of records anymore, but you know, if I've got to go and work for a wage, it's a lot better to go and stand on stage and, you know, sing an old song and, you know, get a free beer at the end of the night than, you know, go work some shitty wage slave job. So, you know, more power to them is what I say. Yeah. You, know? And, you know, there are definitely some bands I'm like, you know, I would go see some of these guys, you know, like 20 years that I that I loved when I was 15. I would, I would go see some of these guys. So, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know. I, I've reached that age where nostalgia is a thing. It's a sign. Yeah. It's a sign of my impending middle age, you know. But uh... <laughs> yeah, movies need only three things: badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be? Deadly weapons and body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. 
Send Rick and Danny in Wool Rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the visual screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hemming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Hail Ming. Breaking 2? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs> Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. All right, I think we can uh, move right on to uh, the movie for tonight, and it's going to be Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice from 1969. Hi. I, uh, I want to welcome you all to the Institute. Uh, my name is Tim, and I'm the leader of this marathon group. The leader's a bit strong, actually. I'm, I'm your guide. Now, as you know, we're going to try to go 24 hours without a break. And uh, we will have two one-hour breaks for food. And as far as sleep is concerned, that's up to you. There are no rules here. If you fall asleep, you fall asleep. One rule. One rule. No physical violence. I mean, you might get angry with someone, so... So please don't clobber him or her. Okay? That's the only restriction. We talk a lot about love. But we don't feel it a lot. So perhaps this marathon will open up some doors. Directed by Paul Mazursky, written by Paul Mazursky and our friend Larry Tucker from Bless the Silence. Starring Natalie Wood as Carol Sanders, Robert Culp as Bob Sanders, Elliot Gould as Tin Henderson, Dylan Cannon as Alice Henderson, Horst Eisenberg as Horst, uh, Lee Bergeri as Emilio. Donald F. Mulich as the psychiatrist. Uh, K.T. Stevens as Phyllis. 
Celeste Yarnell is Susan, and Lynn Borden is Cutter. And we'll go to your synopsis, Daniel. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is about four people, not coincidentally named Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice. Bob, Robert Culp, is a documentary filmmaker married to Carol, Natalie Wood. Ted, Elliot Gould, is a lawyer married to Alice, Diane Cannon. They're comfortably upper middle class, rapidly approaching or surpassing middle age, and good friends. As the film opens, Bob and Carol attend a seminar-slash-retreat at an intentional living community dedicated to opening up communication and encouraging radical self-honesty amongst its participants, and by extension through its society itself. They come back home, embracing the message fully, and share their newfound love for radical self-honesty with their friends, who are resistant at best and hostile at worst. Ted responds with a deflecting sense of humor about the whole thing, while Alice has a low-simmering hostility towards it. Life changes when Bob reveals to Carol that on a recent shoot in San Francisco, he had an affair with one of the women on the crew. Searching her feelings, Carol finds that she really hasn't a problem with the idea, so long as there are no emotional or romantic attachments involved, and the happy couple become closer than ever. Later, during a get-together at their palatial estate in Hollywood and smoking some weed, Carol reveals the affair and her loving response to it to Ted and Alice, which sparks a conflict between those two about how they should socially and morally respond to the news. Alice puts the blame squarely on Bob for cheating, while Ted seems to think the whole thing is just kind of weird. Things come to a head at the club later, when the foursome happen upon the blonde assistant with whom Bob had the affair. What could have been a moment of tension between Bob and Carol comes to nothing, as she proclaims she's proud of Bob for having such good taste. Upset at the casual infidelity, Alice storms out of the club. Later, with her therapist, she comes to realize that she has indeed been incredibly hostile towards Carol and begins to accept her role in creating the conflict among the foursome. The film ends with a long sequence in which the four take a group trip to Las Vegas. Taking some time for drinks before seeing a show, Alice talks about how close she feels to Carol and Bob since learning of their alternative lifestyle. In the midst of her professing her closeness, Ted blurts out a confession that he slept with a random woman on a recent business trip, which leads to conflict, resolution, and revelations of mutual sexual attraction among the four. Agreeing to a foursome, our cast retreats to the just large enough bed of the suite, and after some awkwardness, begin to make out. After a moment, though, the action stops. Bob breaks the fourth wall with an intense and loving look to camera, and everyone gets dressed to meet in the parking lot of the hotel, where a crowd is assembled to really look at one another in a repeat of the kinds of exercises engaged in by the members of the retreat at the beginning of the film. We are left with the earnest but honest conclusion. Freedom to love and freedom to be oneself within society are one and the same, regardless of how much our internal and external hierarchies battle against us. Yeah. And I guess I was very, very much impressed with this film. This this is not one I've ever heard of before, and I'm actually glad you introduced me to it. I loved <laughs> the acting in this, first, first and foremost. Yeah. And these are actors I'm not really too familiar with. Like, Elliot Gould's the only one I'm actually really familiar with at all. And Elliot Gould... Can I, can I say Can I say where I'm actually really proud we've done two films with Elliot Gould before doing anything with, like, Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt? I think that's, <laughs> that's pretty... Uh, well... That means... They must be destroyed on site ethos perfectly. So, yeah, well, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just wanted to throw my joke in. So no, it's all right. Uh, Elliot Gould's a fucking man. Like, yeah. I, I understand why people say like this guy was full of himself back in the seventies because he he had every right to be because he's fucking amazing in this film. But like, he actually kind of steals this film away, in my opinion. Um, he got but, an Academy Award nomination for this. Yeah, and I think everyone else actually kind of really holds up to him, though. Like, Natalie Wood, Robert Culp, and and Diane Cannon are all really great in this. Although, Robert Culp is kind of doing a uh, Peter Fonda impersonation. Like, Peter Fonda could have slipped into this one and done just as well, I think. (laughs) I I don't I I think what Robert Culp is doing is a... I think Robert... I think Bob is doing a Peter Fonda impersonation, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, you know, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we'll talk a lot, a lot about Bob as we as we kind of move forward. But um, yeah, 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 Bob saw Easy Rider and is like, I could do that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Fuck, I, I don't even know if I want to go too deep until we get sort of your initial impressions of this one. Uh, so I'll just throw it over to you. I saw this. I actually, um, when I was doing research for Blast of Silence, I ran across Larry Tucker, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, I had heard of the film, and I kind of knew it was about. It was kind of a late '60s sex comedy, and it was kind of about, you know, kind of um, this group of friends and you know, kind of open relationships. And I went, "This is something I should watch." I've never seen yeah. it, and um, I actually just kind of idly sat and watched it with Shana one, you know, one like Saturday afternoon. We had a really great time with it for, you know reasons which i will get into i could definitely i mean there are things i could criticize about like sort of the way that the film uh, portrays these sorts of things and things that i think the film really gets right you know it definitely fits into this very particular place in kind of american history i also uh watched this for the first time right about the time we were doing a lot of those kind of 70s uh, like the conversation and uh, night moves you know which mm-hmm. are so much about this kind of response to like and the, the, the kind of sexual revolution the hippies lost and, you know, now everything is this malaise. And yeah. then this is kind of right at that, like, moment when that was happening. Yeah. This became kind of a big hit and it kind of became this touchstone for that for that kind of era in a lot of ways. And so the fact of kind of getting to revisit that and kind of viewing it through the lens of the way it was seen in 1969 is, uh, I think, essential to really kind of getting anything out of the film and kind of understanding like, what, what it was then as opposed to kind of what we might see of it now. Um, although I think it, it really does hold up, and I think all four performances, I think um, just on a just on a structural level, I mean, the film is really just a series of kind of long scenes of people acting. I mean, it's it's almost, you could almost do this as a stage play. I mean, you it, could it, do this as a stage play. Yeah. And, um, you know, it really does rely on the strength of the four central performances, so. Yeah, it, it feels like a series of conversations is what it is, essentially. Um, and I, I, I almost wonder if how much of it was scripted and how much of it was uh, improvised, because some of the stuff in here is like really kind of advanced, mature writing for Hollywood at this point, where a lot of it feels like real conversations where people are talking over each other and there's, you know, like interrupting and stuff like that. It's either really well written and the actors just have amazing timing to pull it off or there's like really good improvisation in here. And you can see kind of where Altman comes from Mm because MASH is the next year and, and, you know, kind of that explosion of that technique. I mean, so it's not quite pushed quite as far as in, in that direction. Yeah. Um, but you can definitely see where the kind of artistic, where the, where Altman doesn't come out of a vacuum. Altman is mm-hmm. is is in, immersed in this culture. He just kind of became, you know, symbolized this kind of movement more than anybody else. Um, Mazursky was this, uh, Mazursky is basically forgotten today. Uh, in fact, I haven't seen any of his films. I will be seeking out some of his other films, um, but uh, he is uh you know, he was this guy who was uh, very influential on, you know, a lot of other filmmakers in the 70s and a lot of other, I mean, he, he was just kind of a name guy who was, you know, writing these kind of comedies. He was a big comedy. He was almost like the Judd Apatow of his day, you know, but not not in the, like, shitty production side, more on terms of, like, the, the kind of, uh, you know, name guy who's kind of like oh the the kind of like a the kind of art comedy director sort of guy you know? not That's the what, not the dumb sense. seth rogan going to <laughs> mm-hmm. 
pause. Basically, basically, if uh, if uh, if uh, Judd Apatow had stopped making films after Knocked Up, you know that would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and I wasn't familiar with any of his films either. Like, I didn't think I was. Like, I think the only thing I've seen of his is Down Note and Beverly Hills, and I don't really remember that one to any real degree, I, right? I've, I've kind of read reviews of that. I've never seen it. So, so I kind of yeah. know what the... Yeah, Mazursky is someone I'm definitely... He's on my radar now as someone to, to go and explore some of his films. Um, Same so, area. So it's, it's kind of... I feel, I feel a little bit bad, like, being on a podcast and being like, this guy is hugely influential. I haven't seen any of his stuff. <laughs> Yay! Congratulations! We're completely uneducated douchebags. Yay! Look at us in North America. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, I, I really did kind of connect to the sort of, like, some of the central themes in this. I'm not polyamorous by any degree. I'm sort of a more of a monogamous kind of guy. But I've definitely encountered situations where I've been invited into polyamorous relationships. And I, I really do get Elliot Gould and uh, Diane Cannon's couple. I, I get their sort of position in this yeah. to a certain degree. I mean, although they're slightly wrongheaded about it. I, I do understand this sort of uncomfortable feeling they would have, and I get where they're coming from to a certain degree. Although they're 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 the more conservative couple in the two couples presented here, but they're not really conservative. Like no, they're, no. They're, they're, well, they're 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 upper middle class liberal American. You know, like he's a lawyer, but they're they're. I mean, they're, they live in fucking L.A. You know, like yeah. they're they're. They're they're hanging out. They're smoking weed. They're well, you know, Elliot Goods. I mean, you know, Bob's. I mean, um, Ted smoking weed. Alice is like, oh no, she's she's a little more, uh, you know, stick up her ass about it. But yeah, you know, they 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 exist within this culture. These are not like conservative people. It helps to kind of read Roger Ebert's review from 1969 of this film, yeah, and to kind of give you an idea about how it was seen at the time. And at the time, I think that the the kind of central thing was like. Look at these kind of basically old people pretending to be young people. Like, look at these people in their 30s and 40s pretending like they're hippies in, in their 20s, you know, um, and, and kind of like trying to <laughs> pretend they're not like living in these big houses and, you know, all that, all that sort of thing. And I think that that's sort of like once you have kids and a family and a wife and all that sort of thing, what does free love really mean? And, and that's sort of the way Ebert interprets it. And I think that does kind of give us a window into the way. Mazursky intended it, although I think the film is is deeper than that. I, I think that there are other things going on in the film. And just to lay my cards on the table, I mean, my wife and I are are polyamorous, and uh, you know, polyamorous is kind of a someone saying it's kind of an umbrella term, as well mm-hmm. as kind of being something that is a very specific kind of thing. I won't get into the kind of inner scene, uh, you know, battles among <laughs> among different people in, within the community. But I will say that, like, in general sense, this is actually a story you see a lot with people who first start approaching this kind of lifestyle. You know, um, you see, I, I know a lot of people in their 30s who have kids who are, you know, looking for something outside of, like, strict monogamy who want to try to figure out kind of what that means for them yeah. and um, kind of run into these same problems and, and kind of the way, you know, the first thing that, Carol says to Bob after he confesses the infidelity is like, well, it, it didn't mean anything, you know, like, oh, well, it's just some dumb blonde. I mean, he has to correct her. No, she's not dumb, you know, whatever. But like, 
for her, it's essential that there was no emotional component to yeah. you know, to this, and that's something that carries on throughout the film. And that's you know that's not the way that uh, I Polly, you know, that's not that you know Polly is, is much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, really, what really what they're doing is much closer to swinging or, or wife swapping. Or yeah, that's like. that's what I was that's what I was thinking while watching. I was like, okay, they're they're much more swingers than they're kind of like Polly because uh, even though I don't have like a deep knowledge of it, and I wouldn't not pretend to. I think part of it is, if I'm not mistaken, is you can have emotional connections with separate partners and at the same time still be with someone as your main partner. And well, the way that the way that um, I'll just I'll just say this: the way that it, we're we're pretty open about this, although we don't reveal like details of relationships because there are mm-hmm. other people involved. Shane and I practice a form of polyamory that's called radical polyamory, also called relationship anarchy, where there is no hierarchy where Shane and I are married for, you know, our own reasons, every relationship that I might potentially engage in is completely separate. And every relationship she might potentially engage in is completely separate. And we um, kind of insist on that being like all the way across whatever network we have. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, people try to build like, okay, I have a primary partner and then there's a secondary partner I see on the side. Shane and I like level that completely you know, and that's actually part of like the way that we politically practice this the, the, the kind of lifestyle. Right. Um, but you know, I don't. I try not to judge people who try to enter the lifestyle who don't. But they tend to have these kinds of problems, right? You know, yeah. and so I I kind of see this from the inside. I I kind of you know in the local community, which I I you know I won't out people, you know that sort of thing. But you see a lot of people who kind of dip their toes into it, who then try to impose rules in terms of trying to protect their feelings in terms of trying to protect their, you know, their, their kind of stability. They just want to have a little something on the side. And what they find is that very quickly they run into kind of deep seated emotional problems because they're not dealing with their shit. Yeah. And I think that the triumph of Bob and Carol's relationship as it's portrayed in the film is that it's not that they don't have issues. They do have issues between each other in terms of like the way that they communicate about this, but they work through their problems by like deeply communicating. And that's the part that feels really very much like that's the part that Shane and I really responded to. You know? Oh yeah. That, that's what I liked the most about the film is that they're not presented as like, just like a uh, really hollow kind of depiction of this relationship. Like throughout the entire movie, they're actually working through this. And then as an extension, the other couple is also, they become open to this, they start to realize their own feelings on this and they're being more honest with each other about this. And I think one of the big things, honestly, I think the kind of central message for this film is that if you're into it, you're into it. If you're not, you're not. And that's okay. As long as you're honest about it. Ultimately it's about, it's about openness and communication and it's about like kind of recognizing that there isn't a kind of moral pressure either way. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to save talking about the end of the film, you know, for, yeah. for for a minute. From the very beginning of the film, at the uh, at the retreat, you know, people come to this for very different reasons. You know, there's a woman who's just looking to improve her orgasm. There's a woman who doesn't know why she's there. She literally is just, I don't know. I I came and I'm, you know. There's a guy in his sixties who's just sitting and he's like, I just want to always grow and learn and change. You know, so so people come at this for their own, you know, very different reasons. 
and what they learn is not necessarily sex. There's no sex really at the at the retreat that we no. see. I mean, there's some nudity in the kind of the bathing scenes and the kind of opening credits, which is really just seem to be like, okay, congratulations, you got some nudity. This is what you came here for. Now let's get to the actual fucking. It, movie. it almost yeah. feels like they went to a different retreat and then went to the next one afterwards because it, yeah. the, the opening is like, okay, this is the nudist retreat with old fat white men being like. Uh, sponge bath pretty, 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 yeah by young pretty uh, traditional yeah. attractive women yeah it's like that that's a different retreat then we go to the hippie retreat where everyone fucking hugs it out is this right. essentially yeah. what it is <laughs> i mean and and there are huge problems with um the way this is i mean you know there there's this like kind of appropriation of new age or well new age itself is in a lot of ways in a you know this deeply troubling racist appropriation of you know Native American beliefs and, and kind of druidic and you know all kinds of practices and that sort of thing, and I mean the hippie movement of the '60s is part and parcel with that, and yeah. um, you know I that's the that's the that's the kind of awful part of the hippiedom stuff you know is that that kind of like the embracing of these kind of like the pseudoscience and this kind of religion and this kind of uh, energy crystals and all that stuff. But I think the central idea of if we could all just learn to communicate honestly how we feel, including talking honestly about how we feel about how we feel, you know, that like embracing the like, oh, you hate my haircut. I, I, I am really glad that you expressed that. That's a really beautiful thing that you were able to express that even if you needed humor to do that. Yeah, that is I mean, that is almost central to the way I try to live my life these days, you know, and it's also portrayed as as being kind of problematic in the way that um, Carol wants to share this gift with the rest of the world. She shares it with her waiter who is in this kind of intrinsically hierarchical, you know, relationship with her and then realizes that, like, no, this is something I can't just do with everyone because not everyone's in a place to be able to, you know, like, like this guy risks his job if he starts really, really talking to me about what he means. And then she apologizes. And that's like, so, so the way that these characters in this situation, you know, they have their wealth and their privilege, you know, I mean, these are wealthy white people and that's why they got to go to the retreat. Right. You know, these people are okay. I I just want to make this connection to blast of silence, by the way, in, in my notes, Uh, these people, the end result of the culture depicted in blast of silence from the party that Frankie Bono attends. Uh, These are the, these are the young, hip, urbane white folks with too much money and time on their hands, essentially is what it is. (laughs) Well, I mean, so much, so many of the hippies were that, you know, yeah. so much, I mean, you know, like the people who were, you know, working class who were, you know, scraping their, their fingers to the bone, washing clothes or flipping burgers or whatever, those were by and large, not the people that were embracing the hippie lifestyle. They, they just physically couldn't. It is these kind of people in the upper middle class who do kind of embrace these, these kind of lifestyles. And I can tell you. There are a lot of privileged white people who do not understand their privilege in this lifestyle. You know, um, there's nothing wrong with being. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a filmmaker and having you know some extra money and being able to uh, afford to uh, go to a fancy restaurant and all that sort of thing, if you are doing it honestly. And if you, but like it also means like you've got to like where I think that Bob and Carol would eventually reach, and I think that this is kind of where I land on the film's kind of overall like meaning. Mm-hmm. Is that they are fumbling towards something? This is they have not discovered the end all and be all of of like what all this means. They're still figuring this shit out, and that's what the end of the film means, right? Is that like even if we can go and have a foursome together, 
you know, we, that still doesn't mean that we don't have this kind of obligation to try to understand the rest of the world and, you know, to, to kind of reach out to the world, really embracing this kind of like, let's actually treat each other as human beings and not as objects that we use for our benefit basically means like demolishing large scale hierarchical structures in general, you know, and that means that like, there are no, there isn't a person who is the help who you speak bad Spanish to. And, you know, like, like, you know, there there are a couple of scenes, there are three scenes in the film that involve, you know, um, you know, basically the hired help. There's the waiter at the beginning. There's a, um, towards the end, you get the kind of uh, bad Spanish, uh, you know, Natalie Wood talking to the, to the, to the housekeeper at the birthday party. And then later, and there's one moment, which I, it might even be, you might not even have caught it. Um, depending on how closely you watch the film, during the scene where uh, the foursome are smoking weed, yeah, uh, she's she's a, in the background. She there's a, there's a, there's half. A, yeah, yeah. You see just her feet walking through frame, and I that's got to be intentional on the part of the filmmaker, right? Mm-hmm. Like that 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 isn't. I mean, and I think we're meant to miss that. I think that there is this sort of sense in which the film is pitched towards, you know, like. I mean, neither one of us is wealthy. I'm not going to, you know, reveal our economic circumstances in this, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you and I have the enough leisure time to watch movies and, you know, talk about them on on a, a podcast and pay for podcast hosting fees. You know, you and I are not like in abject poverty and working no. three jobs in 90-hour weeks and that sort of thing. You know, I do think that, but, but, I, but I do think that there is this sort of thing where these sort of, uh, you know, upper middle class white people that this film was probably originally meant for are totally going to miss that moment. Yeah. It it does not hit home on the criticism of them. Like it, it really does not criticize them to any real real degree. Like it's just very much in the background, if at all. Um and that's probably one of the weakest parts of it. I think also one of the weakest parts of it for me personally is I didn't even need the sort of uh hippie hug off commune kind of thing in the first. Yeah. I feel like this movie would have worked just as well if Robert Culp and Natalie Wood's couple had like come to this conclusion by themselves without this kind of sure. thing. And they were experimenting out, outside of that. Like, you know, they it's like, we need to be honest with each other, and that's where it came from. And actually, I kind of think that would be actually a more interesting movie in a certain way. Like, just where they organically, they came to that sort of conclusion and started to work through it. I think that's the, it, it was 1969. You know, well, well, that, well, that's the thing. The movie is very much of its time. And it's like, okay, it has to be, there has to be some sort of infusion of this hippie new age culture into the film at the beginning to set it as a catalyst and start the film off. And I understand that, but at the same time watching is like, okay, are we going to get past this hippie hug off at any point and actually get into the movie? Okay. We're finally into the movie. And now we have the interesting stuff. We have adults talking to each other about real feelings and actually dealing with their emotions instead of just hugging each other. And that's what I really appreciate about this movie. It's like really good conversations between two different couples coming from not necessarily totally different sides of the spectrum, but slightly different. I really enjoyed Elliot Gould. And in his uh, wife's talks, it would it would be really easy to paint them as, uh, or particularly to paint Alice. It would yes. be really easy to paint Alice as just kind of a, a heartless shrew. Like, and uh, a lesser filmmaker would have just done that. And she's not that at all. No, and she's she, deeply she becomes, uncomfortable. Yeah, and but, she becomes 
becomes the key in the final scene. Like she becomes the real key that kind of uh, unveils everybody's sort of like hidden thoughts on on, on everything. Like she actually kind of is. <laughs> She's like the the main central figure in the final well, act of the she, film. She becomes the catalyst because yeah. what she does is she starts to actually believe in this this idea, and she starts to speak the lingo, and she starts to say "cop out" and all that sort of thing. Yeah, she um, she questions them like she throws it back in their faces. And the, the cool thing is that Natalie Wood and Robert Culp have gotten to the point where like they can accept that criticism and actually respond to it and maybe change. Yep. And I mean, that, that's essential. And that's actually, that's actually a sign. I mean, that's one of the things I, I mean, if the ending of this film didn't work, then the whole film wouldn't like, if, mm-hmm. like if they, those two characters did not respond the way they do in that moment, then it would just be, Oh, this is just kind of a shallow seeking orgasm sort yeah. of thing. And that's not what this film is about. This film is about using kind of sexuality as a way of exploring honesty and, and intentional living. You know, I mean, that, that is it. Um, I will push back slightly on your, on the critique that we don't need the hippie stuff at the beginning, because I, I, I agree with your point. Like I, I take your point completely. Mm-hmm. I think that in a sense, what the film is trying to do is almost critique that hippie culture by saying this is what happens when you take that culture and then like expose it to the real world you know the outside world and put it try to try to have real life people really engage with that and i think that uh it's not portraying i mean i I think that it is very subtle but i don't think it is portraying the kind of hippie stuff as as like some perfect unblemished world, you know? Okay. Well, basically the only reason I sort of come back to that is because like the end is kind of a bookend to the beginning of the film where, sure. where everyone goes into the crowd and people are starting to look at each other. That feels like it's almost like breaking the fourth wall at that point. Oh, it's absolutely breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the problem I have with it where it kind of takes me out of the film to a certain degree mm-hmm. where, and I don't need that. I actually, what, what, what I wanted in this film, and I'll, mm-hmm. and I'll put bluntly, is when they're leaving the hotel, they're leaving the show or whatever the fuck they were doing, I want Rubber Culp and Nedley Wood to turn back and smile to Elliot Gould and, uh, uh, what's her name? <laughs> God damn it, this bull. <laughs> Alexander, Diane Cannon. Diane Cannon. Uh, that's the moment I wanted, where they smile at each other, and I don't see that in anything in the ending. That's the kind of ending I wanted, where, yes, they accept that okay, this foursome thing that we were proposing to do, we're not into that, but we're still friends, and we can go on as adults after that. Uh, I, I, I did not need this uh, bookend of everyone outside of the fucking uh, place looking at each other, and sure. I, I, I just kind of felt it was a little cheap, and that was, that was kind of the biggest downfall for me in the film, but other than I mean, that, I loved it's it. Definitely, it's definitely pushing that kind of... Uh, ideology in a way and it's definitely pushing yeah. that sort of you know it and I, I mean i would argue that it is like at least attempting to connect to kind of the larger broader kind of social consensus and make it not just about these four people this film is almost disgustingly earnest you know yeah there, there is not a cynical bone in this film's body this film totally is made great. to to absolutely um it means what it's saying yeah, you know, and it is trying to quote unquote import a message about society and the way we live, and that is, I mean, that's to some degree something that we kind of just have to accept as part of the film. 
you know? Yeah. I, I, you know, I take your, I mean, I absolutely, I, and, I, and I mean, I'm not even trying to argue with you, honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to say, like, I think that viewed through a certain lens, it works if you accept that, like, this is a film that is just about that, right? Mm-hmm. But dramatically, if your interest is kind of following these characters, you're absolutely right. Chopping the first half of the first third, the first like 20 minutes or so, the, the hippie retreat out of the film, giving more time with Bob and Carol kind of realizing this by themselves, and then exploring the dynamic of what happens after the foursome is a much more kind of uh, realistic, gritty, character-based you know, way to treat the, the material in the film. And I would love to see that film as well. I think that yeah. is also a, a really worthwhile film and arguably a better film by today's standards. I mean, I, I would definitely, you know, I, I get that criticism. Um, I'm not trying to necessarily even argue. I'm really just kind of pushing back slightly at that idea that it's, that it, it doesn't work on its own terms. I think it does work on its own terms, but I think that we can kind of question whether that was really necessary, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, overall, I don't have a problem with the film. Um, I, I really like this film. <laughs> it's fucking really good. And I was actually really surprised how much I liked it. It was it was a lot of fun, and um, I'm glad you liked it because I wasn't sure you would, honestly. Uh, oh man, I I really dug just the conversations between the couples. Like that is the central meat to this film. Yeah. And I was watching it, and I was like, okay, I'm kind of expecting maybe this is going to be bullshit. Like this is just going to be kind of hippy dippy bullshit. But no, it was like really sort of stuck into real couples talking about real issues and and hashing them out. And I love that like Robert Culp and Natalie Wood, it does not, like a lot of mo- lesser movies would start out just like presenting these guys as perfect, you know, swingers or polyamorous or whatever, you know, sort of degree on the scale you want to go for. And they had no issues. This was a film that actually dealt with those two people dealing through their issues, like going through them, evolving, and getting to a place where eventually they were really happy with each other and they're happy with their friends. <laughs> and things worked out. And then I was really glad. I was really fucking happy with that. I, I was like, yes, this is great because they fucking fail. They have problems. They are not Bob, necessarily- Bob, Bob talks a big game when it's when, like, uh, you know, Carol isn't actually about to fuck somebody. And yes. then when she does fuck somebody, he has a little process yes. to go through yeah. there. And that's that's a very real moment. I'm not going yeah. to, you know, um, you know, without again revealing kind of like personal details of people I know. I have seen so many people go through that exact set of like emotional responses of like I know, look, I'm I'm upset, I'm angry, I can't believe you did this in my house, in my bed. Like, I mean, that's literally something that happens. Is why you couldn't have done it somewhere else. You know, like you've defiled my bed and that sort of thing, and it's all bullshit because ultimately it's like, what is, what is, what, what am I fighting about? You know, yeah. and um, you know, then realizing that, and then making the decision, like the decision to say, let me go make a drink for this guy. Let me meet him. I'd like to, if it's somebody that's important to you enough to like screw him, I'll I'll go pour him a drink, and then offering him a drink and offering him the cheap scotch first. That was uh, uh, yeah. I, I was I, I had a note about this by the way. Uh, 
his taste in scotch is crap. His best yeah. his, his best offer was Ballantines, and well, right, right. that's not even all that. Which crazy. is better than better than JMB. I'll, I'll say yeah. that you know. Like, he, maybe he maybe, offered, he, maybe he, he had some 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 Glen or something in the back, but like didn't even get that far. Like oh he, okay, Ballantines is good enough for you. All right, good. All right, yeah, we'll just he, we'll he, offer, he offered him Cuddy Sark, <laughs> dude. Dude, this guy just fucked your wife. You should offer him something a little bit better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's already had a little bit better than that. Okay, can I can I be completely lascivious here since we're uh, let, let's stop being serious very briefly? Yes. What do we think about Natalie Wood in this film? Natalie Wood has the best ass I've seen in a long while. <laughs> I'll say that just and and she <laughs> she is she has that. Uh, she honestly, she has that solid Ed Miranda kind of body to her. She has that that sort of that sort of small, tight, cute brunette body to her, and she's beautiful. It's nineteen sixty nine, and like she is very much wearing the uh, the short skirts and the uh, the bikinis and the. Oh goddamn! Uh, the the her her uh her and fucking uh, Diane Cannon. They have no compunction about having skimpy underwear. Uh, I have to give some uh, special props to Elliot Gould for his fucking magic Mormon fucking underwear he's wearing in the end there. That's the <laughs> those are the biggest fucking briefs I've ever seen on anybody. Yeah, <laughs> those yeah. are fucking ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I've never seen underwear like that, but uh, you know, hey, it's a thing. Maybe you know. even Robert Culp wears fucking like bikini fucking briefs for for <laughs> a man. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Bob's Bob's into this. You know, he's he's a little bit more. He's a little bit freer with uh, you know his his uh, you know physicality, and uh, yeah. you know, I'll ask you while we're you know, I, I mean, I just 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 to say it, like for me, like watching Natalie Wood, I'm just mesmerized. Like Shane and I, literally, we were rewatching this this afternoon, and we're literally just like sitting and just going, "Oh my god, she's fucking hot!" Yeah. Like, why, why, where is this person in my life? But I'll ask you, uh, do you think Ted actually fucks the girl on the airplane? Uh, I think the movie implies that he does, and I mean, because he he has the uh, and, he has first, the fantasy. Yeah, it's right. a fantasy, which is quite the fantasy, by the way. <laughs> kind yes. of like, and and that girl almost kind of looks like a mature uh, Mila Kunis or something like mm-hmm. that along those lines. It's like, oh wow, I just saw Mila Kunis tits. Awesome. I think he does. I think he did. And it, it's interesting because the movie sort of delves into uh, the conversations between men, uh, where. Elliot Gould is like he he confesses to his wife that uh, I I just kind of wish he had told me first you know mm-hmm. like that he had cheated on his wife you get the sense that he's the kind of guy who if if fucking Bob had told him he would have kept him to himself and he would have been okay with it you know right. he would have been like okay yeah okay whatever you you cheated with her and whatever and that's in the past and let's just go on. He's actually there's a voice of, will be voice thing, right? Like where yeah. it's like the, the whole yeah. thing is. I mean, we're we're both men, you know, kind of mm-hmm. cis men, and, and socialized in a certain way. And I'm sure you kind of have this thing where you know, like, oh well, you know, if you're gonna fuck some broad, you know, if you're gonna fuck some chick, you know, tell your tell your bros, but to, like, don't tell your wife. Your wife doesn't need yeah. to know that. Like, and oh, fuck that shit. By the way, I'm just gonna yeah, say, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, one of the ways that the film kind of falls down is like it doesn't really interrogate that idea of yeah. like 
this has to be informed consent ahead of time. You know, you know, they, they do kind of touch on some of these ideas. And I think that's kind of where eventually they would kind of land. I mean, at, at this point, you know, the idea that people were still exploring these kinds of interpersonal connections and how to do this appropriately. That's, this is very realistic. I mean, this is very yeah, like, that's, that's the thing with this movie. It's, it's very early on. You can't expect them to touch on everything. I mean, th- and even, this is and even again, people I know within the lifestyle, approach it this way like i know people who basically started doing an open relationship because they had both cheated on each other before yeah and then just decided like well what if we just do this openly (laughs) and then started like exploring that and then realized that like actually doing this openly we're still cheating on each other because we're actually not really like in that healthy yeah. relationship together, you know, this stuff gets way, way complicated really, really quickly. And the there's thing, a lot yeah. more kind of going on, but I, I do think that the film kind of at least attempts to kind of say like, this is not a finished product for these four people. That's, know, that that's the thing. That's the thing about this movie. Yeah. It, it, it presents the arguments. It presents the ideas and it does not necessarily give a solution. It just, it, it presents it to the audience to think for themselves about what's going on. And it's a little bit, just a teeny bit primitive, on, on the sort of the ideas, but I mean, it's 1969. What the fuck are you going to ask for? This is pretty goddamn brave for 1969. So, right. I, I mean, mean, you could even airing it today. Like, can you imagine a movie today that was like about these kinds of things? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's, even today, this would feel fairly risque, you know, yeah. um, for, for kind of a big mainstream picture. And I think that's to some degree, kind of the way that culturally we've regressed since then, you know, yeah. But there was this kind of idea of, like, let's explore these ideas. And I think today, I mean, Second Sex in the City movie actually had a, uh, like, the uh, the Miranda character was, like, trying to choose between two men. And it's like, fucking Miranda, of any character in, like, modern television or cinema, knows what an open relationship is. <laughs> and, like, the fact that it's not mentioned at all. Uh, Greta Christina wrote a great piece about this, basically about, like, how, like, shitty that movie is just because like Miranda should fucking know better. (laughs) Um, Sorry to bring up Sex in the City in this context, but it is kind of like, you know, Sex in the City, what's terrible about Sex in the City is that it doesn't explore things to the degree that like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice did in 1969, you know. That's the point. But but I really enjoyed this movie. Um, It kind of feels creepy to see that Bill Cosby had a cameo in this one. Yeah, I, I I've seen this film three or four times, and I've I haven't gone through like frame by frame. I have not found him in that party scene. I, I, I know I he's saw, in there somewhere. He it's it's near the end of the party scene. He's running out. He's got a hat over his head covering his face. Is that is that when Alice is running out? No, it's before that. He he okay. bumps into the group as they're getting into their tables and stuff. He he okay. runs out and it's like I I kind of assume he you know he's had a unsuccessful sort of roofy kind of uh, e- episode you know uh, not too many chicks were all into him dumping pills into their drinks so yep. he he just bugged out of there and uh, uh jello pudding pops and stuff like that you know yeah 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 no um fuck Bill Cosby or don't yeah. fuck Bill Cosby I yeah, hope he I hope he, I hope he goes to prison and rots there for the rest of his life yeah it That's... won't it, it won't happen but too bad you know. He, he should be in there. And although, you know, Robert Culp and Bill Cosby were an I spy, so that was the sort of connection there. Yeah, I know, that, that was the yeah. connection. I mean, but, like, it's it's also, like, early enough, like, I mean, you know, you can't blame him for, like, working with the guy, like, 
you know, and then like finding out like years later, like, oh yeah, and then he like fucking raped a bunch of people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like well, I I don't blame Robert Culp at all. It's like no, no. no. I mean that's just retarded. Do you do you know Robert Culp aside from this movie? That's the thing, I don't. I've I I've I've never seen him in anything else. He so. was kind of a TV Western actor, you know, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um kind of one of those jobbing working actors who just kind of worked for years. He did a bunch of again westerns on TV. And um, the the other big film I know him for, he was in Hanny Calder, which was one of the Raquel Welch uh, westerns from the early seventies. I, I, I still get to watch that. I, I know you recommended it to me, and yeah. I've had it on my back of my head. But uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's a uh, not as good a film as this. But uh, he was in. He's very good in that. Like he's he's one of those guys. He definitely brings the presence, and uh, I really I really admire him in that last scene because. Uh, He's sitting there, or in the kind of where um, Allison, uh, you know, basically he's sitting there. He just leans back, he puts his head in his hand, and he's just kind of massaging his forehead while he just kind of waits for the chaos to subdue yeah. before he kind of comes in and brings like this kind of like, uh, you know, like kind of intelligence and kind of his own perspective. And he's just like, mm-hmm. you know what? I need to just lean back a little bit. And man, did I totally uh, identify with that character in that moment because yeah. I've been in that room. And it's just like, okay, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to wait. I'm going to let the, t- the, the tension kind of calm down. And then I'm going to come in and we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> but <laughs> jumping in right now is not the thing to do. Um, I, I love that little acting moment. So well, yeah, great. he realizes what the situation is and how to defuse it. Yeah, that, that's the thing. And, I mean, then, of course, they go to the foursome, the, uh, well, the proposed foursome. Then, of course, it goes back to they realize, okay, this is not for us, and that's cool. <laughs> See, I, I interpret it a little bit different way, where okay. I think that the, I think that, I mean, obviously, by the time they get to the parking lot, we're talking on the, the level of metaphor again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't think we're supposed to accept that that's literally something that happens. That, like, they meet a bunch of people in the parking lot and all... Well, okay, well, yeah, and I, I kind of disregard that sort of anyway, because it's like, it just felt like the book into the sort of hippie hug-off at the beginning, and right, I was right. like, I, I don't need to see that. All I need to see is those guys walking down the hallway after after the shot in bed. All I wanted was for them to look back and smile at each other. That's all I needed okay. in the film, but yeah, other than I, that. I think I think that where I would land on this is that the fact that they started to make out and the fact that there is a like extended sequence. Oh, by the way, you get a nice shot of um, Natalie Wood's back with uh, yes, Gold, very right good, there. very good. Um, I'm just being lascivious once again. Like that was a very nice shot, and One rightly so. Modern cinema, by the way, um, you know, equal to anything in Kubrick. The shot of that back. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm at that point in my uh, conversation, right? Um, where I would uh, kind of suggest is that there is that kind of makeup moment, and then you get this very clear kind of camera move where you get uh, you kind of focus on Robert Culp, and then he literally looks up and he stares the camera. Yeah, and I think that everything after that moment is metaphorical. I don't think that we're supposed to accept it as like I think that the idea that the foursome did or didn't happen. It's kind of like, it's almost like the film increasingly becomes unhinged from its own kind of internal logic. Because before Elliot Gould goes into the, the bedroom, he's, you know, kind of fantasizing about what's actually happening. And like, he's kind of afraid of his own, you know, prowess or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that the film, I don't know, 
this ending has been argued about and argued about and argued about, and I don't think you and I are going to settle it. But I did want to kind of just bring up the idea that I don't think the film is saying they don't have a foursome. I don't think the film is saying they do have a foursome. I think the film is saying it doesn't matter whether they did or they didn't. They were open to the idea, and that's the point. You know, I can I can agree with that, and I I, I, I lean on the side that they don't, and they're okay with it. That yeah. they they come to an understanding where everyone sits. I mean, Elliot Gould and uh, Diane Cannon's characters are kind of presented as almost like the leave it to beaver kind of right. parent per, per, sort of parent structure compared to Robert Culp and Natalie Wood. So they have this kind of uh, uh, acceptance of their lifestyle to a certain degree and kind of a amused regard of what they're doing. But I think by the end of the film, they come to this acceptance of, okay, this is what, this is what Natalie Wood and Robert Culp's character are into. We're not into it, and it's okay. okay. And they come to an understanding. I think I think that's where the movie kind of ends. That's fair. I mean, and I and I totally agree with. I mean, I totally get that interpretation as well. I think that's a perfectly valid interpretation. And I think that like what we see from the characters that that feels fairly realistic. That mm-hmm. you know. I'm on the. I'm actually on the. I think I asked you, but I don't think I said it. I'm on the opinion that uh, Elliot Gould did not fuck the girl in uh, Miami. Okay. I, I think. I think that was his fantasy that he was going to do that. I think he uh, tried to chat her up, and she just, well, who the fuck is this loser? <laughs> and then like, but he felt like he needed to be like a bigger man in the moment, you know? Like that. That uh, works as well. He uh, throw it at his wife to just kind of you know exasperate the situation and get things going. I I can kind of yeah I can get behind that as well. Like I mean, the movie really does open it to interpretation. Like you yeah. can't go either way. So. I mean, because you hear him say the dialogue that he was imagining in this fantasy, and it's like you don't see the results. So it was like it, it very much feels to me personally like it could be, "Hey, I'm this guy. I'm a lawyer going into here." It's like fuck off, creep. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he tries to line on her, and she's like, "Who are what? Yeah. what? Or like she runs into her boyfriend or something, you know? Like it mm-hmm. can easily be like. I mean. The fact that we don't see any of that or we don't get any, like, he just kind of blurts it out right there at that moment when yeah. he's feeling the most small about his, you know, kind of, like, inadequacy, his, his perceived inadequacy, is, I think, telling, you know, in yeah. terms of in terms of that. Um, I never interpreted that as he actually did the deed. I always interpreted that as, like, he, he thought he would and he kind of wanted to, but, like, either chickened out or got shot down, you know? Yeah, I... I... I, I can't accept. I mean, the the ending of the film works either way, whether he did it or yeah. not. So I mean, you yeah. know, because it's a character moment, and it, it, I mean, it, it's so. And this is kind of kind of coming full circle, just kind of you know, beyond the kind of ideas and what the film is kind of dealing with. It's so well acted, and it's so well mm-hmm. written. And I think that kind of what I, yeah, I know that to a certain degree, what I'm kind of putting on the film is what I'm putting on the film in terms yeah. of kind of the growth of the of the Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice characters and kind of where their trajectories are going and what the film in quotation marks means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the reason I can do that is because the film is really well observed. Yeah. Both in terms of its writing and direction, but also in terms of the, uh, the, the performances. When a film or when a, a piece of media, a book even, you know, a, a comic book, a, you know, a play, whatever, is um, richly observed... 
and really kind of gets at behavior, when it has that ring of truth, it allows us to um, view these things through a very humanistic lens. And it allows us to kind of see these characters as people and to kind of interpret them the way we would people. And I think that that's the strongest bit of recommendation I would have about the film is it's this very clear portrait of these very kind of real looking people at this particular moment in American history. I mean, if you're interested in these kinds of issues, I think it's almost essential viewing at this point, you know? Yeah. And it really works. I mean, it's, it's not dated at all. Like it, (laughs) I mean, mean, uh, it's it's of the moment. So it's dated for that, but it's not dated in terms of like, like this doesn't feel like homework. So many old movies kind of feel like homework, even really good old movies sometimes feel like homework. This doesn't for me at all. Like this was just a very fun watch. Yeah, no, the, the, the conversations between the characters are, are very modern and very to to the point. Like, they're very much now, even now. So, I mean, yeah. uh, it, it's very much worth watching. Two trivia notes here that I'll, uh, I'll mention. Natalie Wood decided to gamble her uh, standard fee on a percentage of the gross, uh, earning $3 million at the end of the day from this film. She had declined to do this earlier with West Side Story, so... <laughs> She uh, she gambled well on this one. Uh, unfortunately, Natalie Wood only had a very short life, but uh, you know. Yeah, she died. On, I mean, she died at forty three, which is I mean, it's a damn fucking shame because she could very easily be alive today. If, yeah. Uh, yeah. She she had decades of performance left in her. Yeah, yeah. Some of the actors who turned down roles in this film include uh, Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, Steve McQueen, uh, Tuesday Well, Jane Fonda, and Faye Dunaway. Uh, and apparently there was even more people like uh, asked to be cast in this one. And uh, I can, I can, I can imagine this was a film that basically, I mean, because it really is kind of built on these like personalities. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love this mix of characters, this mix of actors. I think that you know it really works. I mean, it was it's amazing to think of like what Warren Beatty would do with the Robert Colt <laughs> because Warren Beatty, like he's a he's a he's a great he. I haven't seen anything in a long time. He was a great actor. You know, there, there's not, there's, an, there's no question, but I don't think he would bring what Robert Culp brings to it. I don't, I don't think he'd do it. I honestly, <laughs> I, I was talking earlier about how he was kind of doing a Peter Fonda impression. I think, yeah. I think only Peter Fonda could have maybe done the same thing he did with this character. Honestly. <laughs> have, you, have you seen Yuli's Gold? Yes, with yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah. that, and, and that's probably the best Warren Beatty film, honestly. <laughs> no, that that's Peter Fonda. Oh, is it Peter Fonda? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking of something different. Yeah, that's fine. No, Hughley's Gold is yeah. the uh, the beekeeper movie that he did okay. in like 1997. Um, yeah, no, uh, Peter Fonda, like when as an you know as an old man, it kind of gets to be a little bit of a badass there, and I kind of think like. <laughs> Yeah, Robert Culp's character, you know, he kind of stops making films. His films don't uh, don't quite don't quite sell anymore, and then he goes off and becomes a beekeeper in Florida. You know, like, <laughs> and he's no longer fucking Natalie Wood, which yeah, is very yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, which is, well, maybe she died or something. You know, uh, like, you know. well, uh, Gould should still be around. God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould then goes off and becomes a uh, crime boss in Las Vegas. Apparently, yeah. if we believe the Ocean's <laughs> films, so you know. Uh, the budget for this was two million, and the overall box office, apparently, including I think maybe not including uh, home video rentals, was uh, thirty-one point uh, eight million dollars. 
<laughs> so which is big money in 1969. Yeah, that's huge. It did like, very well. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say about this. I really liked it. I'm glad you suggested it, Daniel. Um, I had a lot of fun with this film. Actually, this is probably what I'm going to watch again. So, uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I could. I mean, they're obviously like. I mean, you we could go beat by beat through like conversations and talk mm-hmm. about stuff. And there's a there's a ton of material like in terms of the depth, but. I just think people should watch this. I think this is yeah. uh, almost criminally underseen and under-talked about, and I hope that um, kind of coming into the sex comedy series, I know we're going to go and do a bunch of schlock, but I'm really <laughs> glad we're uh, talking about this first and letting and kind of doing something that has a little bit more uh, substance. So Yeah, yeah. yeah this is a lot of fun. Uh, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the internet. You have a multitude of shit now. So say I've got it. so much shit going on. Um, basically, you can go find everything at OisSpaceMan.com. That's where. Uh, so I do a bunch of podcasts that are all kind of collected there. I do a Doctor Who podcast, do a Red Dwarf podcast, do some bonus episodes. Uh, we're going to get back to Firefly when we bother to get back to Firefly. Um, we kind of started that too soon. We weren't quite ready to start that. So you know, um, yeah. But but that's coming back soon. Um, and I also, uh, Shana, my wife and I, uh, write kind of alternate weeks. We're doing a Friday column for, uh, Phil Sandifer over to RudimentalImpress.com. And that's covering sex and gender issues. Um, that's kind of what we've been asked to write about, but I'm sure we'll cover other shit as well. And, um, you can find us there. So, and I'll leave a link to the most recent one that I wrote about yes. death proof, death proof, <laughs> masculinity, toxic masculinity, sexiness, the male gaze, and piss play. <laughs> that, those, are, those are all things that are covered in my 2,000 word piece on originalpress.com this week. So go check it out. And foot fetish as well. <laughs> and foot fetish. I, I kind of brush against foot fetish. I don't you, really you talk about it. You brush on it yet, but you know, it, I, it's there. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't even talk about how hot Rosario Dawson is. So there, there's so much more in Death Proof I could have talked about. Like, yeah. like, uh, like you know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so... Rosario Dawson's my girl. Like, that's, uh, oh, you know, oh, oh. deep, deep crush on Rosario Dawson. Oh, lickable chocolate right there. Goddamn. Um, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, you you can uh, find the rest of her stuff when you listen to the trailer at the end of this. Uh, you can go and... And, by the way, our Facebook group, They Must Be Destroyed on Site, that's the best way to get in touch with us, by the way. If you have comments or questions, suggestions, criticisms... That's the best place to go. We'll read any goddamn thing you want to say. Whether you love us or hate us, we will, we will respond. Even even if you supported Brexit, we would we would uh, read that on the on the. Uh... Oh, yeah, and we will criticize you to the fuck because goddamn you fucking assholes! You're now in airstrip one. That that that's that's where you are now, England. By the way, you're you're in airstrip one. Congratulations. Yeah. You stupid fuckers! Did we just get really too political for this podcast? I, 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 I try to, I try to go by your lead on this podcast. I mean, on my <laughs> podcast, I go wherever I want to go, but like, I try to, I try not to get too aggressive here, you know. Yeah, well, but like, you know, the, there might not be a United Kingdom in a couple of years because, like, Scotland and Ireland are like basically just splitting off and being like, we want to fucking join the EU. Fuck yeah. you guys. There may not be a United Kingdom in a couple of years. And you know what? Fuck you, imperialist assholes. Yeah, I'm, more, I'm fine with that. Yeah, like, more, you know? more, honestly, I'm on the side of more power to them. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm on the side of Scotland and Ireland. You know, like mm-hmm. I was definitely on the Remain side of that. I have enough British friends that I thought, like, surely 
there there will not be any sense in which people will actually do this. Like this is just completely stupid and racist douchebag people who uh, supported right-wing governments and uh, refused to acknowledge the reality of the situation on the ground have completely tanked the British economy today by voting to uh, leave the EU. Yeah. <sighs> Welcome to Airstrip 1, guys. Welcome to Airstrip 1. Had to get political at the end here. Sorry, Lee. It's at the yeah. <laughs> I, 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 inst- I instigated it, so it's my fault. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, if we have not lost all of our, our listeners, please join in next time. We're going to be covering some more sex comedies. I think the next episode is going to be the cheerleaders and maybe one night only if we can get a copy for Daniel somewhere. And uh, yeah. yeah, and that'll be it. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining me. Always great to be here. Thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back in a week or so. And goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. 
There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched OispaceMan.com, where you can find his sci-fi theme podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.